today we are going to talk about Barry. Who's Barry? Who is Barry? You say Barry is someone you're going to find out a whole lot about today. Barry's road to being a, a stylistic influencer in comics was a long one. It took it took 15 years for him to hit the superstar status where he was quite frankly influencing everybody. But Barry, Barry has opinions. <laughs> And we are going to share many of Barry's opinions. An interview given at the uh, at, at the maybe the end, the twilight of his of his peak. Uh, he 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 spares no one, and we're going to get into it. We're going to share this today. It, it, it is one of the uh, nastiest comic book uh, feud rivalry episodes we have ever shared, and and. And it's in two parts, and, and you won't hear him go after Paul McCartney until the next part. But anyway, also today, James Gunn and the DC Universe. There's been a lot of chatter. I weigh in. I give you my thoughts, all on a brand new Observations. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Observations. I am your host, Rob Liefeld. We are back. It's a new year. We are just piling episode on episode on episode, we're so excited. I am so excited to hit the ground running with today's continuation of where we left off at our last comic book feuds episode. Again, we are all about all things comic books here. Comic books are the great love of my life. And, and no matter if they are a, a streaming show, a toy, a video game, a mobile video game, a, a blockbuster movie, they all started in newsprint comics that I love, that I fell in love with. And that's what we do here. We jam it all up. We talk about comics history, uh, past, present, and sometimes we speculate on the future. But it's interesting. We don't do a lot of future here. I got to tell you that. It's one thing that I've noticed, especially with all the sports and the political talk radio that I listen to. People love to speculate. They want to be the ones to tell you what's going to happen in the future and how things are all going to to turn out. They they, they want to uh, you know share with you like, well, this is where I see things going. This is how this game is going to turn out. This is how this pitcher is going to throw. This is how this point guard is going to go. This is how this quarterback is going to run the game. And this is how this team stacks up. And you know what? A lot of times they're just wrong. These people are, are wrong all the time. There are people also, the YouTube climate is the same. They're just speculation, 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 and then boom, flat, you know, just completely implode. Uh, for instance, Avatar 2, all the people, oh, this is it. This is it. It's over for Cameron. You know, you know, it's, 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 it's cost too much. He's going to flatline as it's been out for 14 days and is going to hit $2 million, you know, in another few days. I mean, the guy just can't be stopped. Why bet against him? Because there is a audience of people that they play to who I, I from what I can tell are just negative Nellies and, and they just want to bet against everything and root for everyone else's downfall. And that's just crazy. But you know what we do at Rob Reservation? We are happy. We are happy people. I, I I get so many happy messages from all of you. So I know that you're going to be just as happy to hear what I'm going to share with you today, which is the furthering of these comic book feuds. The last time out, we discussed two giant titans of comic books. One who was a massive success for 10 years, John Byrne, ruled the charts, X-Men, Captain America, Fantastic Four, Superman. The guy really uh, just rewrote the history books with a level of popularity. Now he, he I shared with you how, in his own words how he said he 
<laughs> Others have, have said maybe he is the very first fan favorite, which he isn't. But man, he really is um, high on his own supply. He always has been. It's part of what I loved about being a John Byrne fan. And for so many years, he could back it up. He could absolutely back it up with the quality of his work. But like I said, from like 1987 on, I didn't recognize his work. It, it, uh, he had a different approach. And that's a different story for a, a different time. But we've all had bands. I got to be honest. Some of my favorite bands. Suddenly they emerge with an album and they're not making the same music anymore. And I get it. You want to grow. You want to put the past in the past. But man, don't you want to take a little of of what you were having fun with, right? I mean, and sometimes they don't. I I literally uh, have have, um, just different musical acts. Certain actors decide, hey, I'm just going to be in artsy fartsy fair anymore. And I'm not going to try and do um, more commercial stuff. I get it. These These are choices. But many times they're deliberate. But in John Byrne's case, he approached comic book making very differently. His layouts changed, his design changed, and his style of drawing changed. For whatever reason, he had a perfect tenure. 1977 to 1987 was the decade of John Byrne. But as we enter into the 90s, and he will write about in the forewords of his own hardcovers, the, the, the collections, and, and that's not the only place. He did editorials. He, he became consumed with his own lack of popularity for better for for better or worse and so he goes out of his way to write this editorial and we covered it in the last episode where he puts todd mcfarlane on blast you're not a rebel you're not special it's 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 that uh it's it reminds me of when stallone is uh you know in rocky four in in rocky three i think i think in every rocky yang's so bad you ain't so bad. Hey, you ain't so bad. It's it, it's like, yeah, you just made my face into, you know, a a, a blister carcass, but uh, you're not so bad. Yeah, those, those I'm bleeding and my eye is swollen shut, but you ain't so bad. That, that's the equivalent of what John Byrne had written about Todd in, in this editorial that he did for a retail magazine that was published by Wizard Magazine. And it was like, you're not a rebel and here's what real rebels are. And then he even went so far to move the goalpost and say that, you know, as, as, as I read out loud to you guys from his own words, that, that the creators of Captain America, they weren't rebels. No, they just created the most popular patriotic, the most popular patriotic character of all time. That Siegel and Schuster, who created Superman, the most famous superhero ever, that they weren't rebel. It, it's, just, it's insane. Well, it doesn't stop there. The 90s was full of guys like this. And, 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 and I've, I've really painted it in these rivalries and this be the man mentality and this the, the, this idea that there's a bunch of aging quarterbacks and they don't want to give up the ball. They want to keep being the man, taking the snaps, trying to will their team to a uh, an outcome that is no longer really theirs to decide because their prime is gone. And a lot of the times, it's, it's where we see it the most prominently is in uh, sports, but you can see it in politics too. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. You've got a, uh, I don't care if you're a a, a Democrat, uh, an independent or a Republican, you you will hit the newspaper, hit the news sites, hit the, 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 the breaks on Twitter, you know, the alerts that say X amount of Democrats don't want the president to run again. So why is that? Because they want somebody younger, fresher, newer. It's never escaping us. You know, it, 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 we are going to be having another Superman actor because the current regime wants to Henry Cavill to stand down. We've had three Spider-Man actors in 20 years. Three Spider-Man actors in 20 years. We, we covered the last time how we've had six Batmans. I mean, it's always, uh-oh, uh-oh, should they respond? Could they respond better to someone else? So it, it happens in acting with roles. It happens in sports. It happens in politics. It happens. 
But today, there is a comic book great that decided that he wanted to take his shots at everybody. I don't even know that we can cover it all in one episode, but we're going to scratch the surface. Let me tell you something about a guy named Barry Smith. Before he was Barry Windsor Smith, for a good decade or longer, the comic book, the comic book industry was introduced to him as Barry Smith. Barry Smith did some fun comics. He did some run. He did. He he started Conan, but that's a story in and of itself that I'm going to get to in a minute. I actually. The entirety of that story you can catch on my very first Sword and Sorcery podcast. I just want to pivot you to where you're going to get the most information. But the very first Sword and Sorcery, Sword and Sorcery podcast that I did about a year and a half ago covered a lot of what, a lot, in a lot deeper sense, what I'm going to scratch the surface at here as I, as I paint this portrait of Barry Smith. When Barry Smith came out, he had, when he came around, he was doing... Jack Kirby riffs. He was seen as and referred to as a Kirby clone. Those aren't my words. Those are the words of the fan magazines uh, of the the 1960s and the 1970s. They were the words of the editors and the people that worked with him. They, uh, his peers, his publishers. Oh, Barry, he, he can do Jack Kirby. He's a Jack Kirby clone. He did his Jack Kirby riff uh, on on issues of the Avengers. He did it on stories featuring Kazar. Uh, you know, he was very much a Kirby clone. He drew like Jack Kirby. And when you saw his work, Marvel was reprinting some of this stuff at the exact time that I was getting into comics. I've, I've told you prior, they had four dedicated monthly titles. They never missed giving us some of the great histories, recent history of Spider-Man, Avengers, Fantasy Four, X-Men. And I mean, even further, they went to Submariner and to Silver Surfer because that work is so great. So they had no less than six reprint titles Marvel did. So you were getting in 1977 stories from 1967. I was getting stuff from a decade prior. And so the Barry Smith Adventures came up and I'm like, man, this looks like Jack Kirby. It did look like Jack Kirby. He did Daredevils that looked like Jack Kirby. He did Kazar that looked like Jack Kirby. He was a guy that they hired because he kind of drew like Jack Kirby. Well, when he got the Conan assignment, and here's the deal why, because this is very important. He got the Conan assignment because Stan Lee did not want to release his A-list talent on a book that was untested. Stan wasn't sold on getting a Sword and Sorcery uh, book in the game and in, into his publishing game onto their publishing schedule. And he was basically like, John Buscema's off limits. Now, the, the, the crazy thing is John Buscema, all John Buscema wanted to do was draw fantasy and Conan. He was dying to do so, but John was too important to the company. John was drawing Fantastic Four, filling in and following Jack Kirby after Jack left. He was doing the Avengers. You know, he would even do issues of Spider-Man. John Buscema was their absolute A-list uh, talent. Uh, drew like somewhere between Michelangelo, Frank Frazetta, Hal Foster. My wife saw some of Frank Frazetta's work recently, and my wife did a lot of studying uh, and had an under, you know, uh, graduate with art history. And when I was showing her, she saw some of my Frank Frazetta books, and she goes, "This looks like Michelangelo." And I'm like, it does. This is really kind of where he comes from. It leading me to believe that Michelangelo was, you know, uh, you know, and, and possibly Da Vinci uh, <laughs> were uh, the best comic book artists of all space and time. They were the first comic book artists. Look at those sculpted bodies and figures. Anyway, she said that that looks like that. Well, John Buscema looked like that on a monthly basis. His figure work, his drawing, everything is so beautiful. You should look up anything he did. There, there, there are artist editions that collect his work. But John Buscema, they called him Big John Buscema. I mean, he, he was fast. He was potent. He was beautiful. When you got a John Buscema book, didn't matter who embellished it. Tom Palmer, Joe Sennett, and these guys, it was beautiful. It was gorgeous. His, again, his figure work, his uh, 
when he got into more interpretive, when he do villains and give them the longer faces, the scowls, the, the the noses, the the longer mouths. I mean, he really did. I'm thinking of how he portrayed the thinker, the mad thinker in Fantastic Four, or even his Doctor Doom was fantastic. His uh, Silver Surfer, his. Uh, 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 th- th- there was a character that he battled called the ghost who was like an old pirate. Uh, I mean, just amazing stuff. His Loki, holy crap. His Thor, his Asgard. He then went on and did huge long stints on Thor as well. John, huge, important guy. Stan was like, he can't do Conan. We can't get him. You can get other guys. Roy Thomas, who wrote the Conan adaptations of the Robert E. Howard material that they were, you know, basing the original launch of the Conan comics. Roy, Roy Thomas went to Barry Smith because he was on the list of the secondary people, the cheaper talent, the non-as-expensive and non-essential talent. This is all in that Sword and Sorcery launch uh, episode that I did because I did a number of them. Go to the very first one, I think it's part one, and it covers in depth how Barry Smith was hired because A, he was available, he was the right price, and he wasn't going to take away from the flagship titles, the flagship titles being all of the Stan and Jack creations, the Fantasy Four, the X-Men, the Avengers. Spider-Man Thor. So so Barry gets the job on Conan and he does a pretty good job. He's he's stretching. He's getting outside the Kirby box. You can see it. The faces are changing, the figures are being are are, are getting longer, less blocky like like what Jack was doing. But he couldn't hit the monthly deadlines and uh he asked to, you know, step aside and he would ultimately come back with an adaptation uh, alongside Roy Thomas of a uh celebrated Conan story called Red Nails. And it's there that we start to see the new Barry one, the still Barry Smith. We get to see the new Barry Smith and his style is evolving. He himself is getting into some of the classics like Michelangelo, like Mucha. He is uh, looking at more classic illustrators. He is moving off of his comic book influences and it shows. And he's doing this very dedicated style of inking that is, um, if you know what stippling is, where you do series of dots next to each other, closer the dots, farther away, whatever it Anytime it forms a pattern, it was a form of like sharp stippling that he was doing as his inking. It's very beautiful to look at. And it was the first sign that Barry Smith was changing from this Kirby clone uh, uh, identity that he had made for himself. And again, that is not Rob Liefeld's term for him. That is history's term for him. If you go to the history books that cover comic books, the comics interview magazines, he even speaks of it. I'm going to start reading directly from an interview he gave, but you need to know who he is before I share this with you. So then he goes away. He leaves comics altogether after Red Nails. He doesn't want anything to do with comics. He's terribly disappointed. You'll see how hateful and angry he is about his time early on in comics. Yeah, he's kind of angry and hateful throughout this year. You're not going to be able to dodge that bullet. It's coming right at you. I'm going to read these words directly to you guys. But he comes back after being a fantasy illustrator, but he also was barely scraping by. He started doing more serious fantasy, holding up in a studio. There is a fabulous art album that was put out in the 70s called The Studio. And he started hanging out with Mike Kaluta, who was a very illustrative man, Jay Muth, uh, and Bernie Wrightson, who, you know, would redefine comic book illustration with his Frankenstein portfolio plates. But on Swamp Thing, he had already really started to show like the different layers of rendering that he could bring to the form that was different than anything anyone was doing at the time, even Neil Adams. Neil was kind of the most advanced of the new age renderers and Barry Windsor's I'm sorry, Bernie Wrightson was like, yeah, watch this. And he started doing a very specific form of rendering. That form of rendering is now being shown to you in the Batman Joker book that Mark Silvestri is doing. Just so you understand, there's lots of tethers. You go backwards to go forwards. And Mark clearly 
is doing a very bare <laughs> Bernie, Bernie Wrightson uh, rendering style on his Batman. It, the underdrawing is exemplary, which is what Mark always brings. Beautiful structure, underdrawing, figures, faces, but this very um, uh, attractive rendering style that he's putting down is the basis of what Bernie Wrightson was doing. So Barry Smith hooks up with these guys. They form a studio. They all start doing more illustrative work, paintings, portfolios. They try and get into movie posters, storyboards, do more Hollywood work. Higher paying work for less grind because comic books uh, and, and, and people, comic books are still a grind. When you have to look at a blank page and fill it with five, six, seven, eight, nine panel pages, even do a giant splash page, those are work too. Splash pages aren't less work. They're even more because it's the single shot on the page and you have to make sure that that holds the attention of the reader and stacks up to everything that you've done before it and is going to come after it. So these these guys are looking for more illustrative work. And so many people during this time were going that route. Howard Chaikin went that route. He left comic books. I've covered that in the Howard Chaikin episode. Um, And he went and did stuff for Hollywood, for movies, for television. And he came back and that's when he reinvented himself with American Flag. Well, Barry is going through this reinventing when he's at this stage of his career with the studio. And that kind of covers his late 70s, early 80s. In the early 80s, and he'll tell you, he reemerges inking over his friend Herb Trimpey. Herb Trimpey was the generational Hulk artist for about a decade. Guys like Eric Larson, myself, Todd McFarlane, we all grew up on Herb Trimpey's Hulk. That was the Hulk we grew up on. Those were the books that were coming out. Those were the fantastic adventures. Herb was a fantastic artist, but he was perfectly paired. It was the as as perfect as Todd McFarlane was with Spider-Man. Herb was perfect, perfectly uh, matched with Hulk. The big hulking figure, and 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 depending on the inkers they put on him, whether it was John Severin, Marie Severin, his wife, these these really talented other illustrators, um, or Joe Staten. Uh, there was all manner of different inkers that interpreted Herb's work, but it had a power. And Herb also came from a Jack Kirby template. Herb would tell you 100% Jack was a huge influence on him and it carried over to all the Hulk work, but he was there. He was there every month uh, without fail. And Herb was a generation's Hulk artist. I I have those behind me on my spinner rack. Those are many of the issues that I have behind me. Um, There's a two-part Hulk versus um, Adam Warlock that Herb did that was fantastic. That's like 1974. And again, just Way before that, he stayed on Hulk for the longest period of time. Eric Larson and I have talked. It's like our favorite generation of the Hulk is when Herb was doing it. Well, Herb and Barry Smith became very good friends, and apparently they lived very close to each other. Herb would tell this to me personally when I was at the dinner with him a couple times when we were on the convention circuit uh, before he died. The two years before he died, I saw a lot of Herb. We did a bunch of the same shows, and we would start going to dinners in Arizona, in Houston, in Vegas. And and the downloads that I would have with Herb were fantastic because I wanted to pick his brain, learn about that era that he dominated, that he grew up in. Well, he was assigned to do a Kirby project, a, a revisiting of a Kirby book called Machine Man, a book that Kirby had created, a character Kirby had created, a world Kirby had created. But I'll tell you how different the art looked. They uh, uh, The 1983 San Diego Comic Convention at the Marvel table, at their booth at the San Diego Comic Convention, which was located all the way in the back, an editor named Ralph Macchio had Xerox copies of the first Walt Simonson Thor, so that's around the time this was happening. And then he had about 20 pages, 11 by 17 Xerox copies of the line art of Machine Man. But they had hidden the credits, taken the credits off the page, and they asked people to guess, who do you think this is? 
Well, nobody knew at the time that this is Barry Smith's return. He is inking every panel, every frame. He is combining with his friend Herb, and together they're making this wicked new style. It's Herb's underdrawing, faces, structures, storytelling, and Barry Windsor Smith's illustrative style along with yet another version of the rendering style that I told you he had started in Conan. So he's, de- he's, he's completely evolving how he's rendering, and it's very distinct to who and what he is. And, and I'm going to tell you right now, Barry's rendering style is what you saw myself, Jim Lee, Wills Portacio. We were doing that at the dawn of the 90s. We were borrowing very liberally this uh, cross-hatching style that Barry did because it was so fun. Once you figured it out, once you attempted it, it was so much fun to do. But Barry really is the godfather of that style. I've actually called out some of the people in the 90s who are like, no, we came up with that. No, you didn't. You got that from Barry Windsor Smith. We all did. And 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 I'll get to the source of that in a little while. But the Machine Man stuff wasn't quite there yet. It still was different. It was different looking. So you couldn't eyeball it. I didn't know anybody. And I stood at that table an hour each day trying to figure out what am I looking at? What are these Xeroxes? And it was a game. Marvel was having a fun time. Could Can you guess who the artist is? And at the end of the weekend, the editor said, no one's guessed it. You'll find out when we solicit the book. So it's Herb Trimp and it's inked by Barry Windsor Smith. He is now Barry Windsor Smith, W-I-N-D-S-O-R. He is not the Barry Smith of the Avengers, of Daredevil, of Kazar, of Conan. He is Barry Windsor Smith. Get used to it. Um, Barry Windsor Smith is, is kind of a grumpy uh, British man. Uh, been in New York since his late teens and made his way into the comic book industry. So he was in Brooklyn, in New York. He'll tell you the same, but he speaks with a British accent. He is retired. And let me tell you right now, full stop, everything he's ever done is worth purchasing. Nothing that he says and does in this interview, as as uh, as outlandish as, as he gets, uh, should detract from the brilliance of the work. The work is exemplary, but Machine Man was just the beginning. By the fourth issue, the last issue of Machine Man, he pencils and inks the whole thing. He's no longer uh, inking Herb. That ends after the third issue, and then he just does the whole thing. And in this interview, he also says he took over writing it as well. He just decided he'd... And and, and then he says he was rewriting it and redrawing it from the beginning. So after that, he did one of the, if not my favorite comic book of all time. And I I have a 70s Bronze Age group that I'm a part of. Okay. And uh, I posted in there upon receiving black and white copies of this of this book uh, uh, a few years back, probably 2017 is when I was like, I went on this Bronze Age board and I said, look, this is arguably the best comic book ever drawn. The comic book in question is is X-Men number 186, Life, Death, A Love Story. It features Storm. It's primarily Storm. And Forge, who was this um, inventor uh, character in the X-Men. And, I mean, there are just shots of Storm curdled up in the sheets, curled up in the sheets, uh, and rolling around before she wakes up. And it is some of the best drawn anything anywhere you've ever seen. I mean, this dude, it's not just his rendering. His drawing has evolved and changed. Again, you can see the Mooka. You can see the classic illustrators. I mean, the, the, the literally the... Michelangelo, all of the different influences that have, you know, shaped the new Barry Windsor Smith, whose figures are longer. They're 
Um, their faces are longer. He's really changed how he draws. He is no longer the Barry Smith. In some instances, maybe even Conan number one, you wouldn't recognize it. If I put them down together and ask most people, are these the same guy? They'd say, no, they're not. It, it was that drastic of an evolution in his style. And, and and obviously that came about as a result of what he started when he shacked up in this studio with the guys who, again, they called themselves the studio, Kaluta, Wrightson, and Muth. And they were obviously sharing different influences and evolving each other. Uh, and it made for some beautiful, beautiful work, especially the standalone illustrations in the studio book. And it's long out of print, and but you can find it, I'm sure, if you go and search it. It's stunning, painted work, line art. Each one of them gets a, you know, let's say each one of them gets 45 pages in the studio book, maybe more, 60. And they're just gorgeous plates, illustrations. And what Barry did with his stippling rendering style, he continues again, and, and now he's at next level on this X-Men Life Death Part 1, because they do a sequel. But it's on the X-Men that Barry grabs every, I mean, stops everybody in their tracks. I was in the comic store when this hit. It was a talk of the town. And it literally is a candidate for the single best drawn comic book ever. The faces, the staging, the tapestry of the clothes, the, uh, um, just, j- just the, the rendering, the figure work, the, the, the dramatic beats, the storytelling. It's, it's, Stunning. It's nothing short of stunning. And Terry Austin is actually inking it. He inks this one. It's phenomenal. Well, Barry comes back a couple times and does more X-Men books. I'm telling you this because he's not going to. He doesn't mention this in this interview. He likes to skirt over a lot of the stuff that got him back into the big conversations. Nothing bigger than, though, late 80s, early 90s, 89, 90, he is turning in pages for Weapon X. His Weapon X storyline, eight pages Every other week in a book called Marvel Comics Presents, MCP, we called it MCP, Marvel Comics Presents always had a lead X-Men feature. It started with Wolverine, and then it would kind of cycle back in and out of Wolverine. Sometimes it'd be Beast, sometimes it'd be Colossus, sometimes it'd be Cyclops. But at this time, it was Barry doing the origin of Wolverine. They were going to actually let him, away from Chris Claremont, away from the people who had kind of really invested 15 years into this character, they were letting Barry give you this origin of Wolverine, how Weapon X transformed him um and created him into this uh the, 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 this character this this feral you know secret agent weapon weapon x you know that that the, the department h the canadian government was going to utilize which leads him right into eventually encountering hulk and hulk 181 and 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 we have you know this new age of wolverine is upon us but barry is peeling back the layers it's wolverine with tubes all over him it's wolverine wearing tons of machinery hugh jackman embodies the exact illustrations and depictions that were original to Barry Windsor Smith. Barry originated this look in um, X-Men Apocalypse, which was, they added this in the reshoots when they break in and they encounter Logan, you know, as he is, uh, you know, got all that clunky machinery, has that visor on, uh, has wires and runs through the, 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 the halls and slices and dices. It's a really quick, really just cameo to get Wolverine, Hugh Jackman as Wolverine into X-Men Apocalypse. That is a snippet of what Barry did. What really the, the, the greatest part of what Barry did in the Weapon X storyline is he uh, was able to put Wolverine against a bear and Wolverine against wolves. And then eventually Wolverine escapes and is tracked down by the hunters and then, you know, leaves the entire program in shambles and behind. But for nine different sequences, eight different chapters, Barry is giving you eight pages a month and they are the best thing that is coming out anywhere that, that period of time. When I visited Jim Lee in New York City, uh, when he was living there for a year, 
between 1989-1990, when I walked into his studio apartment, he had stacks of 11 by 17s of the Barry Windsor Smith Weapon X stuff. That's the advantage when you live a couple blocks from Marvel and you go in every day. He had Dale Keown Hulk. He had my stuff. He had Todd's stuff. He had Mark Tashara's Ghost Rider. I mean, again, you take it, especially if you love comic books and you want to consume this stuff and you want to learn. Nothing better than getting it, you know, full size, 11 by 17. But I encountered some of this stuff for the first time before it saw print in Jim's office, seeing these, you know, Wolverine pages. So Barry Windsor Smith was the real effing deal and Weapon X catapulted him to next level fame. Eight pages a month, 16, no, eight pages a week, six every other week, 16 pages a month total is what you were getting from Barry as he told the backstory of Marvel's most popular character at the time. It was not Spider-Man. Wolverine was the most popular uh, character at Marvel, period, full stop. That's why Wolverine was the fuel that was driving all the heat behind the X-Men. And every, and I mean, Wolverine now had his own monthly series. John Buscema was drawing it. Kevin Neal, Kevin Nolan was doing finishes. Bill Sienkiewicz doing finishes. And then you've got Barry Windsor Smith doing this seminal work. I mean, it was just like, wow, Barry's peeling back uh, the curtain and showing us what it was like. We've always heard that he went into the Weapon X program and he got these this, this origin. Now, the funny thing is, oddly enough, John Byrne has had a huge opinion about this, given that he believes he is so responsible, and he is, for Wolverine's popularity, but he's like, I, I disagree with all the stuff that Barry did. I disregard that. And he did his own origin uh, that he put online of how he would have depicted the the origin of Wolverine. So it's, again, it's pretty funny. Nobody ever agrees on everything, even though they both have a mutual target between these interviews with the 90s artists. Most of them are image guys, you'll see, but he does not pull back. Barry is about to unload on John Buscema, on Don Heck, on Jim Lee, on Todd McFarlane, on Rob Liefeld. It is, it is crazy. We're about to get into it, but you had to have that back backlog. Now, from Weapon X, Barry could write his own ticket because this stuff was seminal. Interior pages of this stuff is going for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Barry's Windsor Smith, Barry Windsor Smith's Weapon X Wolverine art is um, the stuff that people clamor for. It gets multiple bids, just people going crazy, trying to outbid each other to take that original piece home because there's not a whole lot of it. The Weapon X collection got its own release. It's got its own hardcover. It's been reprinted in the omnibuses. It's It's got huge traction, huge life. It is an immediate classic. And it was from the minute he put his croquel down on paper and created this story. Wolverine going out and battling the bear. Wolverine going out and battling the wolves. I mean, it, it is visceral, great stuff. This isn't Wolverine in costume. Again, this is hairy. And he depicted, he changed the way Wolverine's look had been depicted. He gave him longer hair, fuller mane of hair. It, it, it's, it's just stunning. It was a perfect compliment. If he had ended his career there, which he didn't, but it would have been a perfect bookend to Conan. Like Conan is where he kind of found his voice away from the Kirby clone. And then Wolverine is where he kind of refined that savagery. From there, he went on to do a bunch of work with Valiant and did some monthly work for them. One of them was called Archer and Armstrong. It was very Kirby. Uh, Archer and Armstrong are basically like young gods kind of one of them was a drunk and it was like a it was a buddy cop comic and it was really well done and it really took Barry back to his Kirby roots you could see the Kirby staging storytelling gestures blocking but now he was doing it in his illustrative style he would then go on and do a huge miniseries for Jim Lee called Wildstorm Rising he would do key chapters of Wildstorm Rising another key thing you need to know as we get into this now 
Gary Groth heads the Comics Journal. I've read from many Comics Journals. I'm going to read from this Comics Journal today. It's Comics Journal number 190, if you have it. And you can read along. But this is some ridiculously fascinating work. And it really paints where Barry was, where he saw himself, how he saw himself, how he saw others at the middle of the 90s. This is 1996. So a lot has come and gone. And certainly, Barry has done a ton of work for virtually everybody. But he is absolutely seen as kind of an artiste, artiste and ruthlessly commercial. But he was no longer really doing any regular work for Marvel at this time. He would go back in the early 2000s and do some more work, especially a lot of covers. He even did depicted Deadpool a couple times on uh, on 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 the um, Wolverine comics and Weapon X depictions. Because I had established that Deadpool was part of the Weapon X program. That was kind of my whole kind of uh, deal that I struck with Marvel when I introduced Deadpool. And you can. Listen to that on the Deadpool part one, two, three, four, and five, the, the making of Deadpool that I started his 30th anniversary off two years ago with those podcasts. But uh, Gary Groth publishes the Comics Journal, and the Comics Journal is where you could go and sit and do a 50-page you know, interview, talk for five hours, and they'd never turn the recorder off. And Gary Groth believed, as you'll see, that comic book superheroes had nothing new to say. And he definitely didn't like any of me or my peers. He did a very combative uh, interview with Todd McFarlane, which I shared with you last season, um, where, where, where it's just back and forth. And he's really testing Todd and putting Todd, you know, put, uh, taking quotes and, and, and putting them back on him and really trying to get him to slip up. It's, it's, it's a gotcha. It's a gotcha interview. And you can see the animosity throughout. Well, here he loves Barry Windsor Smith and they are at the time of this interview, about to publish the next work of Barry Windsor Smith. Fanagraphics is going to become Barry's publisher. None of that matters. It's just it's just subtext. But um, this is a guy, again, who is a legend. And he sits down with the Comics Journal, and you're going to hear a whole lot of super gripey shit. Um, and uh, let's start here. Gary Groth is interviewing him and he says, hey, Barry, I have the same reaction, not just to comics, but to much of contemporary pop culture. And what you're describing practically defines post-modern art, I think, fractured and incoherent displacement of traditional modes. Let me give you context. Uh, Barry is saying right here, Barry Windsor Smith. And again, as now at this point, Barry is, let me give you context, much more relevant than the John Byrne that wrote the editorial about Todd McFarlane. Barry is super popular. His peers, fans dig him. Now, they don't dig him on par with Todd and Jim and the image guys, but the, he's well-respected, huge. His craft is, incre- is incredible. Again, do not um, miss anything he's done. He, he retired after doing a giant 350-page graphic novel that he'd been working on for 20 years called Monster. It came out during the pandemic. Fanographics collected it. You should get that too. You should have all the Barry Smith. There is, there is no condemnation of any single line that he produced. But boy, oh boy, is this about to get fun. He, uh, he is saying, uh, he is saying here, he says, chaos. One essential, this is Barry Windsor Smith. One very essential perception I had at the time was how chaotic comic book images were, how literally ugly most of the pages and the characters and the colors were in the mid 80s. I began looking over the current work published by Marvel. I was appalled by the lack of harmony and synchronicity. I had become highly sensitized to the aesthetics and poetry of the visual arts and all other forms for that matter. 
And I tell you, to pick up the latest Incredible Hulk, Spider-Man, or what have you, and to try and make sense of the cacophony, yes, he says cacophony, of the cacophony of it all, the hopelessly bad drawing, the garish misapplied colors, the ineptitude of the words. Most comics just look like colorful garbage dumps to me. No wonder the average adult cannot understand comic book appeal. Comic books can truly be ugly and late ugly appeals to children. More than beauty and harmony does. Thrash metal, lukewarm punk, has replaced the three-part harmony of the Beatles or even the Stones. All I could see in these publications was a riot of immature ramblings. It's just a bleeding American comic book, I know, but quite frankly, I find such projects aimed at children to be grossly disturbing on a level far more sensitive than the moral majority could ever comprehend. Let's say that again. And it's just a bleeding American comic book, I know. But, comma, quite frankly, comma, I find such products, comma, aimed at children, comma, to be grossly disturbing on a level far more sensitive than the moral majority could ever comprehend. And that's when Gary Groth says, I have the same reaction, not just to comics, but to much of contemporary pop culture. If I haven't been clear, Gary Groth owns the Comics Journal. He is a big, either the owner or the managing guy at Fantagraphics who publishes all this stuff. Gary says, I think fractured and incoherent displacement of traditional moats is, is, is a thing now. He says, not that structural experiments can't prove aesthetically fruitful, but when they're not applied appropriately and become a standardized approach by 10th grade hacks, they prove the worst of each world. So, Windsor Smith, then he, they, Gary Groth brings up Mouse, which is an acclaimed you know, work by Art Spiegelman about the Holocaust told with mouses. Okay. And uh, it tells the plights of the Jewish people during Hitler's oppression of them and the Holocaust and the murdering of the Jews. Okay, all that. So then they pivot to, to Mouse. Then they, talks from, uh, then they talk about Joe Kubert, who had done in, uh, a book called um, Facts from Sarajevo, which was a real-life uh, retelling, uh, almost biographical in nature, of, of, of a man's survival in the war over there. And I met the gentleman who inspired the story and very nice guy and Joe Kubert, stunning work. There's a pull quote on the next page. If you flip it, it says, your Jim Lee's and all this, their product hasn't gotten anything to do with them. You know, there is no invest emotional investment in their work because I'm, I'm giving you the windup. I haven't given you the pitch again, Barry Windsor Smith, big Wolverine, Marvel X-Men superstar, but he won't tell you he's that in these pages. he, Acts like if I don't say it, will they will they identify me with that? Um, he talks about uh, Barry. Then talks about how sad he was by a Gil Kane interview that he read in Wizard, and uh, he talks about the fact Gil Kane comes to mind, a classic Silver Age, Bronze Age artist who we all look up to and love. He, he but he talks about uh, you know. That, that, that there's a new breed of comic book artists. They, they can't get away from this new breed of, and I also call them American comic book artists. Now, just also, Barry Windsor Smith only works with American publishers at this point. Marvel, Valiant, Wildstorm. It's just funny, but it's the American comic book artists that, that he is very disturbed by. So then he says, uh, it's Barry that introduces Jim Lee in the last part of this looking back at, like, there's no Kirby, you know? And, 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 and he's remorseful that there's nobody, that, that people like Gil Kane, they're not made from the cut like he was anymore. And he says, uh, I don't, Barry Windsor Smith says, I don't understand. I'm not 18. 
He says, uh, but you're Jim Lee and all this lot. Their product hasn't got anything to do with them. You know, there's no emotional investment in what they do. And then Gary Gross says, well, here's more the pity, Barry. Maybe it does. So he's maybe, maybe, maybe what he's saying about Jim Lee, the work that you're liking, the work that I'm liking, the best work that Jim did, which is in the 90s. He's saying, hey, maybe it is just, that's, that's as good as you can do. That's the implication here. And then Barry says, oh shit, laughter, scathing, scathing, you bastard, Gary. Well, then Gary says, I really wonder if consciousness hasn't been reduced to that level. Where Liefeld, here I go, here I'm, I'm now included, and Lee and a lot of them have invested a certain amount of conviction into the PAP. He calls it PAP. It's an A, not, a, not an O, not soda PAP. It's into the PAP that they draw. Um, he says, at least Gil Kane's generation uh, didn't invest in it because they didn't have that degree of, a degree of perspective. And what he's speaking of is they, were, they knew that the best that they could aspire to be was workman, journeyman artists. So that's what Gil gave was workman, journeyman effort, okay? But we're supposed to be knowing to give more because the Frank Millers and the Howard Chakins have knocked down the door. Then he says, Barry says, well, we all make the same mistake. I, you know, I just did. Everybody else does. We can't blame anybody for this. You know, we always say the Liefelds and the Lees, he says. We always say the Liefelds and the Lees. And Groth says, yeah. And then he says, Barry Windsor Smith says, Rob Liefeld has absolutely nothing to offer. It's as plain as bacon on your plate. <laughs> I love bacon. I know, I know a lot of us like, like bacon. So Rob Liefeld has nothing to offer. It is as plain as bacon on your plate. He has absolutely nothing to offer. He wants to keep saying this. This is not a repeat. I am reading to you exactly what Barry Windsor Smith is saying. And then here's the, here's the best. This is where you know that this is going to be a batch. We're at the beginning of this interview, by the way. He says, he simply cannot draw. He simply cannot write. He is just a young boy. Um, at the time of this, I'm 30. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm 29. I'm 29. He is a young boy, almost I would expect, whose entire culture is bubblegum wrappers. So Rob Liefeld's entire culture is bubblegum wrappers. He says, that's his culture. And then Barry drops the bomb. Somebody was at his house and came back to me with a report. Okay. <laughs> Somebody was at his house and came back to me with a report. There is not a single book in his house. There is only comic books. I see nothing in his work that allows me to even guess that there is any depth involved in the person that might come to the forgiven time. To the four, sorry, to the four given time. Okay. There is not a single book in his house, only comic books. I see nothing in his work that allows me to even guess that there is any depth involved in that person that might come to the fore given time. I look at Jim Lee's work. He says, he continues. This is him. This is, there's nothing. It's right after he says, given time. I look at Jim Lee's work. He is learning to draw. He has some craft to what he does. Okay. Thank you, Barry. And Gary Groth goes, okay. And then Barry Windsor Smith says, Jim Lee is married. He has a child, I believe. Being married, having a child, facing life, making a commitment to another human being, creating, co-creating another human being. This has got to put profound thoughts in your head. Does it? I don't know. That, that is word for word. Then Gary Groth says, well, in theory, I would agree with you. But on the other hand, on the other hand if you look at their work, the Liefelds and the Lees, Liefeld is somewhat more technically accomplished than Liefeld, but otherwise, conceptually, they are comparable. And Barry Smith says, I can't disagree with that. What I'm trying to allow is people who have artistic inclination 
And there are a lot out there, a lot more people who have artistic inclinations. They can get married at 19 and have three children before 25. You know, they can go through a hell of a life. They could be born in an inferior interior of an urban slum. They see more of life before they're 10 years old than a lot of people see before they die. And he just goes on and then he says, but if you have artistic inclination, even if it's only on Liefeld's level, there's a way of expressing yourself. Here, I'm going to go and put them both in the same bag again, but I don't believe the Liefelds and the Lees. I don't think it has even crossed their minds that comic books can be a medium for intimate self-expression. They are a fourth generation Kirby from the Marvel Comics Entertainment shit. It wouldn't occur to them that this would be a medium for self-expression. And that to me is the biggest drag of all. So you guys have heard this. You've been listening. It's 43 minutes. I, I gave you about a 25 minute windup of Barry Windsor Smith. And now you're just getting it's all falling out of his mouth. Jim and I don't draw our, you know, we don't express ourselves artistically. Someone went to my house. Also, by the way, if I can interject, someone went to my house and clearly didn't see the giant bookcase I had invested in. Now on that bookshelf were art books, art history books, film books, cinema books, Kubrick, Spielberg, Lucas. Okay. Uh, Scorsese, Coppola. I was really into filmmakers, James Cameron, big, thick, hardcover books. I had novels. I had Stephen King novels. I'm sorry that that didn't meet with whoever Barry Windsor Smith's spy was. And you know that I'm saying this all with a tongue in cheek. The, the, the bookshelf is real. The books are real. But this is hysterical. He had a spy who reported back to him. You guys have to understand when I read this, and I read this when this came out in 1996, because the Rob Liefeld um, is, uh, has nothing to offer. He is a boy whose culture is bubblegum rappers. <laughs> uh, it, my culture is bubblegum wrappers. Now, the interesting thing is, as he's giving all this, you know, when they give interviews, they give art on the side. There is a There are drawings of Wolverine from Weapon X on these pages. It says from Windsor Smith's Weapon X. Uh, so, uh, so, so then he talks about Mobius and whether Mobius is drawing that bloke who flies on the pterodactyl or doing something more personal. He has a personal investment in that. And you can tell he writes from the heart. And uh, it's, it gets a lot better. Because then Gary Groth says, I want to get back to what you said about Lee and Liefeld not knowing that this is a medium capable of personal expression. By personal expression, you're talking about something that can be objectively determined as meaningful. That has some determination, some human relevance. But I think we've reached a point, certainly in the comics culture, where people like Todd McFarlane, Jim Lee, or whoever, they think that they are expressing themselves. I constantly read interviews with people who talk in grandiose terms about what they do. And then I look at what they do and it's just absolute pap. This is the interviewer, the guy that owns the magazine. Barry Windsor Smith says, I dot, 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 didn't dot, 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 no dot, dot, dot. This is, this is literally meant to give you a long pause. And then it says, after he says that I dot, 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 didn't dot, 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 no dot, 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 that. Then it says long pause in parentheses. Like I'm like the way I, didn't know that in response to Gary Groth telling him that guys like Todd McFarlane and Jim Lee, they are doing interviews, talking about themselves in grandiose terms. And what they do is absolute pap. Uh, Gary Groth says, things are worse than you thought, Gary, Barry, see, things are worse than you thought, Barry, see, this is, and then it says they both laugh. And then Barry Windsor Smith says, God damn it. I'm just reading the wrong magazines, Gary. Are you actually referring to the Jim Lees and the Rob Liefelds? And Gary Gross says, yes. If you read interviews with these guys, they really think they are committing themselves, body and soul, to this sub-literate drivel they're producing. 
Do you now understand why I had to share this with you guys? It took till season four, but I cracked it open and I'm sharing it with you guys. I am giving it to you straight forward. They really think they're committing themselves body and soul to this sub-literate drivel. How good is that, right? How freaking great is that? Is that great? It's great. Um, so, so, so again, it's just that these are coming within years of each other. These are coming within years of each other. These, uh, you know, these interviews, John Byrne just going, I'm going to write an entire editorial and then I'm going to talk in my forewords about the image guys, about Todd, about Rob, and then Barry Windsor Smith, who, who, this is now the third page of this. Let's keep going. And, uh, Barry Smith says to the response where he says, God damn it, I'm just reading the wrong magazines, Gary. Are you actually referring to the Jim Lees and the Rob Liefelds? And he says, yeah, if you read interviews with them, they really think that they are committing themselves, body and soul, to this sub-literate dribble. And Barry Windsor Smith says, they are claiming it's personally valid. Gary Groth says, well, in a special kind of way, I think you and I, oh, I think of you and I, Oh, these guys are more moral than Marvel. They're the moral comics group, laughter. So there's obviously no value lying about it. Maybe they thought they were being moral. I think they th- I think they thought they were. I applauded them because I wished I had the financial wherewithal when I quit Marvel in 1973, when I walked out with only $150 in my pockets and I spent it on my first Gorblimey print. That was his, Gorblimey was Barry Windsor Smith's publishing imprint. He, he When he was doing his prints and stuff with the, uh, Studio guys, his personal, where he put out print, Gorblimey. And if it didn't work, I'd have been working at the diner. But when they left, they had money. Obviously, this is all Barry Winsmith talking. And I thought they were saying, now, now's the time to strike out. Now's the time to sever the chain and throw away the ball. Let's, let's go out. Let's do it, guys. I mean, I was so idealistic about them doing all that shit. And then this whole bleeding thing happened earlier this year. With Rob Liefeld and Jim Lee going back to Marvel. God damn it. I wrote the most scathing letter that was supposed to be public. You guys, this is good. Okay, let me get back to this. So this entire starting up above at, oh, these guys are more moral than Marvel. They're the moral comics group. And how he he, he thought, how he wished he had the financial means that we did when we left. Again, this is something that all these guys are thinking about constantly. He says, uh, God damn it, I wrote the most scathing letter that was supposed to be public, most supposed to be a public announcement sort of thing, just putting down everything about this. I never had it published. I never sent it out. My attorney, Harris Miller, talked me out of it. He said, Barry, do not send this thing. You will get sued. Then you're going to make my life way more difficult. Gary Groth laughs. Barry says, I faxed it to Frank Miller. Frank Miller felt exactly the same way as I did, of course, and it already made his attitude public. He did not. That is not true. Frank was doing covers for me. Frank was doing covers for Jim. Frank was working with Todd McFarlane. So Barry, wake up. I guess Harris didn't get to him fast enough, but it seems to me, so he's implying that Frank said the same things that he wanted to say about us, which he didn't, but that, and because Frank said them, which he didn't, that he's implying that his attorney couldn't shut Frank Miller fast enough, up fast enough, but he, but he shut him up. He says, I guess Harris didn't get to Frank fast enough, but it seems to me that they said, hey, look, all those publishers are making all that money. Let's make it ourselves, guys, which is good enough reason, I suppose, just as long as you're upfront about it. He says, uh, Gary Gross says, could you elaborate on your lament over what you perceive as the, design, as the decline of the craft? Okay, so 
Barry Windsor Smith was incensed that Jim and I did Heroes Reborn. I mean, he and Todd McFarlane could have gone out and had a nice pint uh, consoling themselves over that. Because as I've covered in previous the Heroes Reborn episodes, how Todd was flipping angry that we were going to do. Because here's the deal, guys. It's like the other day, segue a little. I put up a list of my favorite Batman artists. And some people got mad. And when I say some people, I mean less than 0.5% of the people who interact with me got mad because I didn't put their favorite. Well, your favorite's not going to be my favorite. And how does this pertain to Todd McFarlane, Heroes Reborn, Barry Windsor Smith? Jim and I wanted to do Cap and Fantastic Four. Those were characters we wanted to get to. And starting Image, I think we believed we wouldn't get the chance again. So three, four years later, when we got that chance, we jumped at it because we felt like we were in our, our prime. I felt like I was. I'm very proud of that Captain America work. I always will be. I'm glad I did it. We did it because we wanted to play with toys in the sandbox and we cut ourselves a good deal. That's it. You know, but to everyone else, man, it incensed them. Barry talks about the craft and he says, there are declining standards. It's probably true. A lot of different media, you know, but then again, we have pockets of good stuff. 30 years ago, we didn't have anyone in the field who could write as well as Neil Gaiman. But by the same token, it was, geez, I can't even imagine myself saying there was a higher standard 30 years ago because there certainly wasn't, not in drawing or academia like that. I don't know. I'll probably put my, my foot in my mouth by getting more detail. Gary Gross says, there is certainly a sense where even the middling artists, I don't know what you want to call them, the journeymen, if you want to be charitable, the hacks, if you want to be uncharitable, but people like Dick Ayers, Don Heck, what sort of middle-level artist is no longer around? That sort of middle-level artist is no longer around. What you've got instead are inept children. Okay, obviously he's talking to myself, Todd, Jim. I mean, we've been name-dropped enough in this thing, right? Well, there you are. You answered the question for me. And he says, I don't know if you know, you know this. I know you made a goof once in public about Don Heck. And Gary Gross says, yeah, right. And Barry says, but I can dig it. I can understand how you would have done that. I'd have done the same, very same thing. And then he jumps down and he says, and Gary Gross says, well, compared to today's people, he now looks like a great draftsman. And Barry says, Don Heck, once upon a time, used to be a great illustrator. He ha- he's got some comic book work in print. Of course, you know, um, they're out of print, but that stuff was published. I don't. I don't know when, I can't think of the exact dates, but it was certainly pre-Superhero Marvel. I think it was Marvel Comics before they hit the big time with Jack and the Superheroes. He had a wonderfully illustrative style, closer to top quality fashion illustrators. He used to draw the most gorgeous women, I mean highly stylistic, of course, but in that 1950s fashion sense, there was this tiny signature on the splash panel, D period heck. I saw this long after heck had become a hack, but I thought, now, this is mean. Like Now we've, again, Barry's a mean guy, calling Don Heck a hack right here. He says, I, he says, I thought about Don's work. This guy, you really used to sing. But what happened to him? Now, it wasn't as if he was turning out six books a month for Marvel so his average quality hadn't gone into decline. He was only doing Iron Man or something like that. So what the hell happened to Don Heck? Well, it could be anything. I don't know his personal history, but it could be that it's just the same old story that he was told to draw like Jack Kirby. Same old bleeding thing you've heard me rattle on about endlessly. Obviously, he was trying to be dynamic. He was trying to do big figures in the dynamic Kirby poses, but it just wasn't working because it wasn't him. So there you have another poor wretch who fell to the demands of early Marvel. So we have called Don Heck a hack and a wretch. I don't know if I'm correct about this. This is just a guess on my part. But in regard to the new foundlings in the field, when I came in in 1968, I was pretty awful. I didn't have a hang on anything really, but I had gone through art school. I did learn how to draw properly. Uh, Barry, I've seen your early stuff. It looked like wonky Kirby. So let's not hang our hat on you had learned to draw properly. Exact, not exactly how you're saying it. 
Um, but my comics drawing really didn't display that, of course. But at least I was coming from the right angle. Oh, that's so damn qualifying, isn't it? At least I was coming from an angle that did, in its essence, have genuine knowledge behind it. It's been said a thousand times, and it's absolutely true. You've got to know the rules before you can break them. Uh, I, are, are we talking about the same Barry Smith that was doing Kirby knockoffs in the Avengers and Kazar and Daredevil? That's my side commentary. He said, Jack had drawn in many styles over his career, but during his heyday in the 60s, when he would draw a leg or an arm, you only knew it was a leg and an arm because it was either coming off the shoulder or coming out the pelvis. So here is where Barry now takes shots at the guy that he broke into imitating. This interview is something, and we're going to have to break this into two parts. I'm about to close this down for this section. He says, uh, if you separated one of Captain America's legs and put it all on his own, just one single leg, no foot, no pelvis, and just put it on a blank piece of paper, you'd be hard-pressed to figure out what the damn thing was. It would look like a sausage from Mars. Gary Groth, of course, laughs. So, so this is now, I've, the last few sentences are just taking shots at you. We have pivoted away from taking shots at Don Heck. We are now taking shots at Jack Kirby, who, as I told you, began his career drawing just like Jack Kirby, Barry Windsor Smith, when he was Barry Smith, was called a Kirby clone. So there's, it looked like a damn sausage from Mars. Again, let's, let's figure it. If you separated one of his Captain America legs and put it all on its own, just one single leg, no foot, no pelvis, and put it on a blank piece of paper, you'd be hard-pressed to figure out what the damn thing was. And earlier, you only knew it was a leg or an arm because it was either coming off of the shoulder or coming out of the pelvis. So there's Jack breaking all the damn rules. But as I say, the man had the bedrock of knowledge. Seems today that we have people who have not learned, but have adapted. They are adapting. They are using a style of some nature that is twice, thrice removed from pencils who didn't have much knowledge about the drawing in the first place. And here's where we're going to wrap it up. If you imagine any one of them reading these words, if they could actually think of actually reading the comics journal, which is unlikely, and imagine them saying, oh, what the fucking old fart that Smith bloke is. He thinks we should all go to art school. What an asshole. So be it. But as I say, there are pockets of some very good talent. He said, uh, you've heard me mention Chavis, Travis Chures. He's along over in Jim Lee's setup. He's just fine. He has a very basic understanding. He's okay. He throws many literary red herrings into the stories without even realizing it, I suspect, he says. So he gives Travis some play. Then he admits to, making comics today isn't really about creating characters or about involving the reader in a personality and what that personality or groups of personality are doing and how they feel about what they're doing. Instead, it's about how cool the insanely overworked pinup shot is. How many bleeding details can you stick in the top left-hand corner before a caption goes, goes over it? That, to me, seems like the essence of what it's about in com- commercial superhero comics today. But that's not the criteria from our image in Marvel. He says, when I was doing that Wildstorm Rising thing about a year ago, my one and only foray into image, well, for start, I should have never bloody done it. I wish I hadn't have done it. So he's now saying, I wish I hadn't have worked for Jim Lee. I, uh, I should have never bloody done it. I wish I hadn't have done it. Okay. I was talked into it and got caught up in it. And it had to do with, oh man, it's almost like a nightmare. Only far remembered at this point. I was going through this hapless story where I couldn't understand what anyone's motives were. I was looking for a motive that wouldn't come to me. I tried to read some of the preceding books and I still couldn't find anybody's particular characteristics except for one guy who was big. And then I had to draw these characters, these supposed characters. These are Barry Windsor Smith's exact words I'm reading to you. Gary says, I'm assuming you didn't write this. No, no, Barry says, I mucked with the plot awfully and the writer loathed me for it because I mucked around with his plot. 
Gary Groth laughs, says he probably didn't even notice. No, no, he noticed. He was kind of miffed. So I heard from a third party, but I thought I'm just going to improve his product for crying out loud. But anyways, I did a real false start in it. I got three pages into it, trying every trick in the book to psych myself into doing this, and it just wasn't working. I was in a great depression over the story, and I thought, oh God, this is the first time in my life I'm going to make an utter failure out of this. After intense thinking, I realized what I was doing wrong. I was looking for characters. I know this sounds glib, as if I'm trying to build up a funny line, but I'm not. That was my problem. I kept looking for characterization when there was none. There is no characterization. That's what you're doing wrong here, Barry. They're all ciphers, I said to myself. And Gary Gross says, are you talking about the characterization on the level of the 1960s Marvel? Oh, absolutely. We're talking minimalism here, but at least something that we know as a part of comic books. I mean, I wasn't looking for Harold Pinter here. Gary Groth, of course, laughs. Maybe a little bit of a deluded Stanley, but when I realized there was nothing to look for, that's when I thought, okay, now it makes sense. So then I just drew the damn story. However, did you get suckered into something like this, Gary? Well, let me tell you something. Yeah, he, at least he's going to be honest, because if he wasn't, I was going to tell you. Oh, you don't know. Oh, he goes, oh, you don't want to know, Barry says. Harris Miller, my attorney, talked me into it. Groth says, okay, so he is truly evil. He really is. I mean, I love him and all that, but he gets me into trouble sometimes. He said, this could be great for your career, Barry. Yeah, right. (sighs) That's his job. He often reminds me, but yeah, I really think characterization has sadly departed. For whatever we want to say about Stan Lee, at least he did his thing with Spider-Man. We can give him a short applause for that. There really isn't any much more to offer. I mean, the guy invested a tremendous amount into that Wildstorm Rising and here grouses about it because he's, he's shitting on the guy who paid him and the partners in the label at the time. There is so much more to come. You haven't lived until you've seen Barry Windsor Smith go full hog after John Buscema. And if you think what he said about Jack Kirby and Don Heck was mean, Get ready for um, maybe some of the meanest stuff. Here's the deal, guys. Why am I bringing this to you? Why? Have I, well, first of all, hopefully, above all things, it's to entertain you. This is a really lengthy conversation, and Barry has a lot more to say. But remember, the same throw line. These are guys whose stars had dwindled. Barry Windsor Smith's attorney was telling him to do a Wildstorm crossover because it would be good for his career. Prior, after Weapon X and, apt, and, and after all the Valiant stuff, and, and Barry will scratch a little of what he did at Valiant, but uh, you saw the, saw the pot shots he took at Kirby there, the pot shots he took at Don Heck, the pot shots he took at Jim Lee, myself. I am a bubblegum rapper child. I love that. I dig it. I digged it at the time. I, I, you know, it's one of those things like, wow, I live in Barry's head. I live in, look, I look at Barry Windsor Smith's work. I admire it. I have a, I'm, I'm a huge fan. It doesn't matter to me whether he looked up to me. What I know and what is a fact, and this is really the ugly truth is, you can hear us talk about all the people who resented us in the 90s, or you can actually have me read you their interviews. This is what the comic book feuds is all about. This is what the comic book feuds portion of our observation series is about. It's when these people get real. It's like that, you know, when MTV launched Real World, I was watching it as I was, you know, Making Youngblood, the first couple seasons, right after X-Force, MTV launched this really state-of-the-art, put all these people together, filmed them. It was just those early seasons, those first like three or four seasons are just gold. But, you know, the slogan was, see what people, how they act like when they start to get real. Because, you know, the cameras are on all the time. So eventually you're going to put down your facade. This is an industry that put down its facade that wanted you to know 
We don't like Todd McFarlane and the success he's achieved. That's John Byrne's whole editorial. We don't think he's special. If he thinks he's special here, I'm here to tell you he's not. Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld have no personal investment in what they're doing. What they're doing is pap. How many times in this interview were, were we called pap, delusional, that, that, that we, we, we thought what we were doing is grandiose? Let me, let me tell you something. We were just trying to have fun. We grew up on comics and we had a, a spirit of chill, a kid's spirit, a kid today, to this day, I am 55 years old as I speak into this microphone. I will draw a page in the morning. I drew this morning before I came and, 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 and am doing this with you now and recording this. And I'm going to ink that page and draw another one tomorrow. And my entire approach is childlike. I want to take myself all the way back to the stuff that I dug as a kid. I've told you how I think comic books are told differently now. Some, some people are making comics as screenplays, as pitch decks to sell a movie, a series. Some of this stuff is not written with visuals in mind. Um, I am trying to return to the basis of my youth when John Byrne rocked my world, when Barry Smith rocked my world, when John Buscema and Jack Kirby rocked my world, and put that back into the page and give a childlike uh, approach. You know, at no point, here's a spoiler, does Barry in our next section talk about manga? Because manga never forgets big shots. Where do you think we got it from? I've, t- I've, I've told you honestly before. So much of what I do and what I did and what I poured into was manga. Manga was my inspiration for page design, for layouts. Sometimes I would do open homages, 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 whatever we're going to call them, oranges, tangerines. I would do homages to the manga and the anime that I love openly, unapologetically, because it's fun. Because what they were doing was so over the top awesome. And that to me is how I approach my comics. But it seemed to me that we had not lost our childhood um, love, our childhood passion. And we were continuing to put that on the page. When Jim Lee is drawing Captain America in that full splash page, jumping into the fray with the Nazis, he is thinking about the kid is going to receive that. Not only is he thinking how kick-ass it looks in the anatomy and the foreshortening and the leaping gesture, he's thinking how you're going to receive it. That's what we're always thinking. I want to think how you're going to receive it. And as you get into this, because ironically, what, what Barry is going to talk to you next time is how Kirby inspired the project that he was about to publish with Fantagraphics is. But like I said, there is so much more to come. I'm trying to give you this glimpse, but there was an industry who was definitely at war with us, even when they took our paychecks, even when they took our promotions, our marketing, our efforts to set, set them apart. And they would sit down and let it rip. You, you didn't remember maybe that Todd and Jim were ripped on the same par as your, as your devilish host, okay? But it was a group think these guys are bad. What they do is bad. They can't draw. Barry Windsor Smith literally in this interview says, Jim Lee is learning to draw. Jim Lee had been in the comics industry just shy of a decade at that point. And Barry Windsor Smith in 1996 is saying, you know, uh, he's learning to draw. So we're going to continue this series on, on, on comic book feuds. And uh, the words that these people committed to paper, again, they can run, they can't hide. These are their words. And I don't have anything but admiration for both John Byrne and Barry Windsor Smith. They, they, they created comic books I absolutely love. But like Brett Favre, like Joe Montana, these guys did not go quietly. They did not want to give up their quarterback positions, their position as the guys that everyone was looking at, the guys that everyone were talking about. And in fact, they hadn't. They, the, Barry Windsor Smith did Wildstorm Rising because his attorney 
said, hey, this is a good paying gig and it'll get you out there and maybe you'll get more good paying gigs because that's the one element that's missing here. Hey, Jim will pay you top dollar. And he did. So, because uh, I remember I asked Jim at the time, wow, what did it take to get Barry? Okay. Uh, so comic book feuds continues. This, this, this is turning into, look, the comic book feuds episodes. I hope you enjoy them as much as I do sharing them. Because again, these guys, they say this stuff and it's so fun to share with you. And, and like John Burns' editorials, Todd didn't, have anything other than love for for John. We we looked up to these guys, even when they openly shat on us. And and so, like I said, come back next time. We're doing more of this. We're gonna hopefully wrap it up in our third installment of this current comic book feuds. Um, the the nineties guys are are on are 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 being hunted here, and and we're sharing it with you. I'm sharing it with you, and I hope that you are enjoying this journey half as much as I am sharing it with you. So we will have a whole lot more of that. Barry Windsor Smith interview in our next episode as we as we continue with this comic book feud theme and and again you can see the guy has a lot to get off his chest and like the John Byrne episode prior to this where he decides to target Todd McFarlane and then throw a couple of us in there as well uh, and that was the John the John Byrne one was was semi mild this this Barry Windsor Smith one he really gets fired up and. Again, to give this all context, you have to understand that there is something about the image partners, the the the, the chief image guys, uh, and 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 it's not lost on me that it is primarily it is always Todd, Rob, Jim, Todd, Rob, Jim. That that's it's being mentioned again and again, and it's because we broke all those records, and it's because then when we launched Image, we we sold more and more and more millions, and. We seem to trigger these guys. We seem to really trigger this generation that preceded us. And here's the other thing. See, John Byrne and Frank Miller and Walt Simonson and Howard Chaikin inspired us. We were all reading their work in our 12, 13, 14, 15, you know, age groups. So then we add, you know, I I break in at 18 years old. Uh, I'm doing Hawk and Dove. Hawk and Dove is getting published when I'm 19. I'm on the New Mutants in my early 20s. 20. By, by the time I leave, I'm 22, 23. Uh, and I've already been doing the Marvel DC thing for like, you know, five years. And then Image happens. And Jim Lee, a little older, a little, little, little more, maybe another year, year and a half on the resume. Todd, a couple more years. But we, we were inspired by the Chakens, the Simonsons, the Starlins, the Burns and the Millers. And so we started to write and draw our own books. And after us, if they weren't from our studios, like the, uh, the Stephen Platts and, you know, the, the J Scott Campbell's, those guys, they were kind of the next level of like guys who were writing and drawing. But even when like, you know, rest in peace, Mike Turner, but even when Mike Turner went and did work for DC, he was, he was drawing from a, a script. He was working with a writer. There isn't another generation. You don't get to the early 2000s. You don't hit the early 2000s, even up to now, and you don't get it. Let me flip it. It would be as if while they were at Marvel all simultaneously, the continuation of what I'm telling you is if Brian Hitch and Steve McNiven and, uh, and Olivier Coipel and Jimmy Chung and uh, a couple other, the, both Cuba brothers, okay, just to get to six or seven, if they all started writing and drawing their own. It, it stopped. The rest of the artist group were paired with writers. And 
that is how you know the the publishers preferred to lean in that direction in in recent years yes you've got a sean gordon murphy fantastic talent bounces between independent work some batman miniseries you know you've got daniel warren johnson incredible talent dances between independent work some some dc and marvel stuff beta ray bill wonder woman but you don't have these guys in mass working in conjunction along at this i mean you had Byrne and simonson and Miller all writing and drawing their own work simultaneously. And yet Todd, Rob, Jim doing their own work simultaneously. It hasn't happened since. But there's something that happened during that period that triggered these guys who had inspired us. The only guy who it did not legitimately trigger at the time was Frank Miller. But it triggered John Byrne. It triggered Barry Windsor Smith. It triggered a lot of other guys who eventually found their voice, spoke up about it in the manner that I'm bringing it to you. So we'll continue along that road but you got to wonder why why did we trigger them so bad and i just can't help but again think of it's the retired quarterback the 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 quarterback that's being retired the pitcher that's being retired the the point guard the center that's being retired this this uh it all it does not always go as easily as you would um believe and nowadays we see all the we see all of the cracks because the media is on it 100 percent of the time they're, they they are on it all the time, telling you who is coming up behind so and so. That the the you know the replacement is on the way. Whether it's a role again, we're we're going to be in the age of a new James Bond here in a couple of years. Superman is being recast. So so on that note, and I, and I meant to bring this to you guys. So much of what's happened in the, in in that ended twenty twenty two. We had the big, you know, shake up at DC Comics. And the result of that was, I mean, there was a lot of stuff. There was a lot of stuff, um, you know, that, 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 that took over, that took over uh, the, that took over the headlines in regards to, um, you know, DC Comics and, 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 uh, man, I mean, <laughs> the the changing of the guard you had uh james gunn come on with peter saffron they were announced as the co-heads of dc studios and there's been a lot of chatter ever since and you know one of the, the big the bit the, the two big stories the two big stories that ended the year after they got named was that no more black adam no more black adam movies the dwayne the rock johnson is 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 that that chapter is open is was closed as fast as it opened, just done. And then Henry Cavill is no longer Superman. I'm a huge, as you know from this podcast, huge Man of Steel fan, huge Henry Cavill fan, huge Zack Snyder fan. I all I can do is say I didn't like it. And at the time, I said I thought this. I think this sucks that that Henry wasn't given his chance. But I'm not here to give you my opinion on on that further than what I've offered. Like I mean that that's it. You. you I don't want to slip into whiny mode. I, I I don't want the whining. That the whining bothers me. Like I can say ah that sucks and and leave it really at that and it's it. Like that kind of summarizes it. But there is speculation every single day, d- deciphering James Gunn's tweets, everything he says, what's in the background of his photos, and and here's here's my suggestion. It's not it's not a uh, you know it's not really it's it's of course it's my opinion. It's my viewpoint. But I'm not an opinion show. 
I try and share with you stuff that's happened in comics and give you the perspectives and give you the interviews if I can. But in this case, I think I mentioned, you know, earlier in this episode, previous episodes, I'm not, I don't like the forecasting. I don't like the guys. It, 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 it drives sports. It drives movies now. Is this going to fail? What's this going to make? Like, I knew James Cameron's Avatar 2 was going to work. And here we are. It's, it's working fabulously. I would never, ever position myself against that guy. But there were a whole bunch of pundits that wanted to tell you how it wasn't going to do well. Do you notice a lot of the times the future forecasting falls on how something's going to disappoint you? Very few people will be like, this is going to blow your socks off. So I'm not forecasting here. And this is what I would suggest. And it's not even a suggestion. Let me, let me, let me, let me backtrack. Let me tell you, this is what I believe. Nothing uh, that James Gunn can say or do. He can't tweet or give an interview or a commentary or post an Instagram pic that is going to replace showing us a finished product. When we, there'll be set picks, right? Let's backtrack this. So he's already said he's going to write a new Superman movie. Okay, fair. Can't wait to read that. See, I, I, I believe that it will be interesting uh, to say the least. I can't imagine whether I'll love it or not until I hear about it, read it. But so they'll, they'll, he said he's going to do a younger Superman. That's why Cavill had to move off. And what, what else you can read into that? I'm not sure about how they're going to, you know, completely rescheme the DC universe. But here's what I believe. They can cast somebody. Oh, and then I'll go chat. That'll, that'll get the chatter. Whoever they cast. Oh my gosh. And then, you know, it'll be picking a director, picking a visionary. Maybe it's James, maybe James Gunn will be directing that Superman movie since he wrote it. Who knows? Uh, then there'll be like set photos. Okay. Then like, look, every, from experience, the Deadpool movie started off with a set photo. They announced that principal photography was underway with a set photo, a, a, a photo staged for you to look at in the best possible way. Both the first Deadpool and the second Deadpool. Do I believe in April or May when they start shooting Deadpool 3 that they will give you a set photo of Hugh and Ryan as, as, as Wade and Logan? A set photo will emerge. You know, production will commence. And, and the reason they do that is to get ahead of the paparazzi. They want you to see what they want you to see in the way that they want it framed and shaped before the paparazzi get their um get their shots from way above on the first Deadpool movie when I was shooting my scene my little cameo scene in the bar that day when I I left the the, the makeup trailer and I got in the Escalade with Ryan and we drove over uh when we got out of the car the car went right up to like a covered entrance like a they they had made a with with different poles and they 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 had a covered entrance so we were walking into like basically a tented entrance and Ryan said to one of the assistants, uh, we still we still got paparazzi up on the on the balconies because the bar area was facing a group of con- a bunch of condominiums across the street. And those paparazzi were sitting at the balcony shooting down, trying to get as many pictures as they can. You've all seen them. You've all seen them. I, I remember this really being a big deal going back 30 plus years with Tom Cruise when he was um, being Lestat in Interview with a Vampire. They didn't want any of those photos getting out. And it was all tented entrances or he left without his makeup on and um, it was a closed set and they tried to keep pictures at all. So they tried to keep pictures from, you know, escaping in any way, shape or means. They really wanted that on lockdown. Well, when you do these uh, big movies again, so so like I said, 
Ryan was like, so joking, like, we still got the guys in the balcony. I mean, it was, it is something that they're aware of. They know they're being hunted by camera lenses, by paparazzi who are trying to get any, you know, sliver of what's happening so that they can, you know, shoot it. When uh, Miranda Bacharin was done the next day, because I was there uh, on that scene, when she and Ryan have their meet cute in the bar, you know, she would leave under a heavy coat with a hood and again, walk straight through the tented area into the Escalade gone. So there was really no point. The Escalade literally pulls up so that the door opens inside the tent so that the lens can't see through the Escalade into the tent. So they're completely always, you know, trying to hide this stuff. So do I believe that Deadpool 3 will have a staged photo the way they want you to see it? They don't want some leaked photo of somebody walking in a coat in their, you know, costume. They'll stage it the way they want you to stage it. And whenever James Gunn and Peter Safran's new DC starts, we'll get a, sta- we'll get a staged set photo. So those, there's the casting, there's who's going to direct it, there's the staged photo, a commencement of principal ph- photography, then, you know, maybe some other, others will leak, you know, because the, the doesn't discourage the paparazzi, it just makes it harder for them to do what they want to do, which is get leaked photos to you. But then eventually you'll get a trailer right? And then finally, maybe another trailer and then the finished product. So nothing that James Gunn can tweet or interview about or share in an inter- you know, share in, a, in an Instagram post or on a Facebook commentary, none of that is going to replace giving us a great movie that we all love. None of it. I don't I, like you can work yourself into a lather and aren't you a little tired? I mean, lately the, the chatter of the last year is how many of these projects from all of the different comic book projects disappointed people. That's what I would say is the chatter of 2022. The, the fan letdown has commenced. The fan letdown is in full swoon. People are looking for something to inspire something to go. Wow. Fresh take new, exciting take back on track. Those are words you haven't seen yet. You haven't heard yet it's not happening as of yet and when we get something that you know we believe is a return to form or a pushing of the envelope or a next level breakthrough we'll we'll all experience together we won't be able to shut up about it because we're this shared you know as as uh mr elon musk says town town square but nothing nothing this is what i believe nothing that james gunn can say or do is going to replace giving us that finished product that electrifies us and sets us on our way. So why bother? Why bother? I just did five, seven minutes on this. And like, honestly, I I wish I could get those back, but I want to weigh in. And that's my belief. You can say it's an opinion. It's my belief. It's my belief. And on some level, isn't what I'm sharing with you kind of factual, actual? I mean, you can give me an actor. You can give me a director. You know, when they announced Patty Jenkins, when they announced Gal Gadot, even after the first trailer, I didn't know that the first Wonder Woman movie would be so fantastic. I, I think that is a high watermark for the DC films. I think that first Gal Gadot, Chris Pine, Wonder Woman movie is fantabulous. Similarly, I had no idea that I would hate the sequel as much as I did based on everything. Leaked photos, set photos, announcements, castings, and trailer. None of it could prepare me for like, oh man, I don't like Wonder Woman 1984 at all it was i think that was the name of the sequel but wonder woman 2 so you know what we're putting this guy through his paces we being the collective us media fans everybody all the engagement and i just gotta tell you it's not gonna you're not gonna know whether there's a new sheriff in town until the movie is in the theater and we're seeing it and and is that three years from now i mean it feels like it it feels like it's three years from now two years at the earliest. So. 
That's my belief in in weighing in on all the craziness that I believe is is, is surrounding everything James Gunn, Peter Safran related, the new bosses, the new sheriffs at DC. I would just say, you got to make the product. We got to see the story. We got to see it all work together before we, you know, make any decisions. Everything else will, will not be the deciding factor. The trailer won't, the set photo won't, the casting won't. So that's my way in. And I am hoping that we are really close to getting that breakthrough, return to form, next level, which any of those threes would be great to get us out of the letdown that we've been in this what seems like these last couple of years. So, hey, check this out. The end of the show, and that's where we are. We are at the end of the show. We share your reviews. You guys are so kind. You you leave reviews for the show, and man, it, it, it doesn't get better than when you guys write a glowing review of our show, and you share it, and we share it, and you give us five stars, and you say nice things because you're enjoying it, and and it's not a replacement for the word of mouth. Word of mouth is the best. The word of mouth, and so many of you are sharing, and and your stores are playing it. You're listening it to, to in your in your um, car on your on your commute. You're 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 listening to it while you make packages, while you you know clean up the decorations, while you uh, you know while you jog, while you exercise. I get all these. I get all of this from all of you, and I'm so thankful. And I do appreciate when you go out of your way to leave that review and leave that five stars. Here is um, a, a, a really nice one from uh, a guy named Brad Example. He says, uh, he, 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 uh, he um, says the, the comic loving friend you need, okay? It's lonely being a comic book fan sometimes. It's rare that I come across anyone that loves comics as passionately as I do. But when I listen to Rob discuss comics with the same passion, I feel a lot less alone. Beyond that, he's a great storyteller and just plain fun to listen to. Thank you, Brad Example. That was sweet. That was to the point. He gave us five damn stars. Brad Example, I am so uh, just, you know, touched that you would be as generous as you have in, in, leaving, in leaving this review. Uh, thank you. Thank you. I'm so glad you listened. I'm so glad that you are enjoying it. I hope this these new episodes um, keep the quality that you like. We got a lot of comic book feuds. We got a lot of comic book history. Um, we got some lists because lists are always good to trigger everybody, right? I'm, I'm finding this out the hard way. But uh, thank you. When you leave a, 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 a review, we appreciate it so much. It helps us stand out on the platform. It helps elevate uh, this show. And I'm, I'm so thankful. Thanks. Um, thanks for spreading the word. You can catch me on social media, on Twitter. I'm still there. I think Twitter works great. I'm the guy. Uh, I just, I'm, I'm basing it by what I experience. I have experienced no change whatsoever. I love being on there. I love sharing with you guys. I love talking to you, your mentions, your, your, uh, your responses, all the interaction. I am at Robert Liefeld. I have that blue check for whatever it's worth. It's supposed to verify me, <laughs> but uh, you know. It is a crazy world we're living in. Who knows what it'll turn into? But right now, that's me. I am at Robert Liefeld. I still, as of this moment, have a little blue check that's supposed to be a verification next to my name. That's how you know it's me. I love talking to you. I love interacting with you in every way, shape, or form. Find me, hit me, uh, give me a follow. Uh, and and I'd love to see you over there on Twitter, at Robert Liefeld. On Instagram, my um, where I do all my photo dumps. Um, you never know what I'm going to put a picture of because I'm 
I have no game whatsoever. And my kids tell me, dad, your Instagram game is terrible. I will take them at, at, at their word that my Instagram game is terrible. And you can see it at Rob Liefeld on Instagram. Again, a blue check. It verifies it's really me. It's not going to be me asking you to donate to my cause as some of these phony um, blue check accounts, as these phony non-blue check accounts do. Again, that's the one good thing about the blue check. It's it's supposed to verify that we're legit and not some, um, you know, horse and pony show. So uh, follow Rob Liefeld at Rob Liefeld over on Instagram. Love reading your messages, your direct messages, your, I mean, your DMs, your mentions, your messages, uh, all of the different ways that you communicate with you, me on uh on Instagram at Rob Liefeld on Instagram. I am currently on whatnot. The whatnot app is a state of the art collectible selling app. Uh, it's live auctions. I am on there twice a week. I am Rob Liefeld on whatnot. Please come and join me. I, uh, share signed comics, signed toys, signed Funkos, uh, original art. I do a lot of custom signatures, uh, come up with a blood splatter, Liefeld logo. What is that? Find out on what not a, a rainbow Liefeld logo, a Liefeld chisel. Find out what all these whack terms are. Um, follow me on the whatnot app. Download it. It's got trading cards, magic cards, uh, all, all manner of collectibles, comics, toys, Funko Pops. It's got uh, tennis shoes, all manner of kicks, uh, jackets, gear. They're, they're even, I mean, there's high-end Rolexes. I mean, you know, it'll, it'll, be, it'll be cars next. Just you watch. But in the meantime, over in the comic book corner, in the toy corner, your buddy Rob is on whatnot. And I love to see you. I am generally on Wednesdays and Saturdays if the schedule sticks. Over on Facebook, I have a group that I would love for you to be a part of. It's called Rob Liefeld Marvel Extreme and Beyond. We changed the name of it, but we have got a killer group going over there. Um, either myself or a gentleman named Terry Sala will click you through. And we will welcome you into the into the group. We are the two moderators, administrators, whatever titles they've given us. But that is how you know you have reached the right place. Um, there are other Liefeld-ish groups. This is the one where I am interacting with on a daily basis. It's the only one I'm interacting with on a daily basis. Love to see you over there. We talk all things comics, all the stuff that I've worked on, characters, whether I've created them or not. Come join in the discussion. Love to see you there. Rob Liefeld, Marvel Extreme, and beyond. That's the group. That's the one you should look for. Hope. Hope to see you there. So that's Twitter at Robert Liefeld, Instagram at Rob Liefeld, what, what not, Rob Liefeld, Facebook, my Facebook group, Rob Liefeld, Marvel Extreme and Beyond. I think that pretty much covers it. I hope that you are doing well. I hope that you are taking care of yourself. Get away from the craziness. Read a comic book. That's, my, that's always going to be my first recommendation. Read a comic book. Read a graphic novel. Read a cool book. Watch a great shit series. Watch an old movie. You know what I did? I was determined. I had watched way too much football over the holidays, the college playoffs, the the NFL playoff picture, watching all the different games. And I said, you know what? I've been wanting to watch the Golden Voyage of Sinbad, which came out in 1974. My dad took me to see it at the drive-thru. And so I popped it in and I just was like, no one is going to bother me today. I'm putting this on the big ass screen. I've got the DVD that I've had for a while. Probably hadn't watched it in about eight years. And it was, oh, Harryhausen and his incredible state-of-the-art special effects for 1974. I've always loved the all the different adventures of Sinbad, but that was my guilty pleasure. And my mind, I could just feel my body relaxed. The tension went away. I wasn't caring about the outcome of some game or whether I had to keep taking down Christmas decorations. I just went boom, full recliner and watched, uh, you know, a really fun movie, a, an old movie that I really loved, The Golden Voyage of Sinbad. The next one, 
is going to be uh, probably seven. Uh, Sinbad, the eye of the tiger, you know that that's going to be next on the queue. But I did what I tell you to do. Just chill out, go watch a cool movie, a cool show, read a comic, get away. You know what I did? I did. I had a cupcake. I have a cupcake place near me. They see me once a week. I get my allotment, my six pack of cupcakes, and I distribute them through the... (laughs) through the week. I am very meticulous in how I will consume the cupcakes and how I break it up. Okay. But man, are they delicious. And maybe that's a donut for you. Maybe that's a bag of Doritos. Maybe that's a bowl of chili. Okay. Maybe that's a cup of soup. Uh, Maybe that's a full on steak sandwich. I don't know. Figure it out. Just take that, get that away so that your spiritual self, your mental self, your emotional self, and your physical self can get a break. And by getting a break, you're feeding them. Okay. You know, you're, uh, my son has become this almost mad level bodybuilder just just but he has to take days off or he has to relax and he watches his anime and manga because he's got to give his body a break and then it relaxes and he absorbs and he's so excited to get back at it that's what i'm talking about but i'm not suggesting you become a bodybuilder because neither am i so thank you as always for spending this time with me and i hope that you find your way back around the cul-de-sac to see me because i'll be here waiting for you because we most Certainly, absolutely, inevitably, we'll talk again real soon.